wonderful to be back with you again, only a, a month later. I want to encourage you this morning to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 1 offers angelic visits, ancient prophecies, and glorious pronouncements about the Messiah. Luke chapter 2 begins by telling us how these events were fulfilled, beginning with the greatest event of all, recorded in verses 1 to 7. Read these verses with me, or listen along with me as I read God's Word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we come to you again this morning to thank and praise you for the gift of your revelation. Father, we speak about ourselves because we have needs. We want people to know our stories, to know what we have done, because that's what we need to to, to feel complete, to have friends, to enjoy a community. We need to know and to be known. But Father, you have no such needs. You are ever sufficient as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a sweet and enduring and perfect communion. You are known. You each know each other exhaustively. And yet, God, you and your kindness in the overflow of the wonder of your majesty, glory, and grace have chosen to reveal yourself and what you have done not for yourself, but for us. And so as we consider that benefit this morning that we receive, help us to give our fullest attention to your word. Help us to worship you in our listening, in our thinking, in our believing, in our repenting, to worship you with heart and soul and mind and all that we are and all that we have. Do this, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. And we ask, Father, that even in these petitions, that you would hear our praises, because it's only to you that we come, and in your Spirit's power that we rest, and in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. In the 1920s, which some of you will remember, (laughs) there was a joke that went something like this. One day, a young man from the country came to the city in order to call on a girl. But when he arrived at her home, she came to the door wearing a hat. And that's it. That's the joke. And let me confess, I didn't get it the first time either. 
but sad as it is to have to explain jokes, that's really how you ruin jokes, let me do it anyway and then say why. When a man was calling on a woman in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, he hoped to be permitted to enter the house, meet her mother, make some conversation, maybe hear the piano played by the young lady in question. But when a woman in the early 20th century came to the door with her hat on, it indicated that she didn't want to visit. She wanted this new thing called a date. This new concept that involved her being entertained usually in public, and usually at his expense. The country bumpkin who wants to call instead of date is the butt of the joke. The girl with the hat is the punchline. Now, I mentioned this story about dating, not to say something about dating, but to say something about words. Sometimes, as in jokes, just a few words can speak volumes. But in order for those words to speak to us at all, we need to study the words and consider their context. Understanding words and context is very important for Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, where Luke's account of the birth of Christ is very economical in its word count. In fact, Luke pinches his words in these verses like a Dutchman pinches his pennies. In just a few lines, he manages to remind his reader of a worldwide decree in verses 1 to 3, of a prophecy about a town in verses 4 to 5, of a time fulfilled in verse 6, and finally of a promised birth that was supposed to be astounding in its glory, but was in fact astonishing in its poverty, as we see in verse 7. In order to understand this Christmas passage clearly, we need to begin this morning, just as Luke does in these verses, by by wearing historians' hats and looking back on world events. The name Caesar Augustus, which Luke mentions in verse 1, is a name that speaks volumes. Caesar was the first Roman to be declared an emperor and the first leader of Rome to effectively enforce a worldwide peace, or at least a period of peace. Wars, yes, were still fought out on the frontiers, but within the empire's borders, near the center, there was a peace that lasted for two centuries. But as Roman power grew, Jewish power shriveled. The Romans carefully eroded and eventually removed Jewish rights of civil government. The Romans had conquered the Jews, and they gradually left them with the rights of religious government only. This, too, was important for the spread of the gospel, because this loss of Jewish freedom and control both created a sense of longing amongst God's people and fulfilled the ancient prophecy of a dying Jacob to his sons. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. The scepter, the the rod or, or wand of kings and rulers had truly departed from Judah, but the departure left a question behind. Had the time come for the real ruler to be born, who would reclaim his rule over Israel? As a good historian, Luke 
reminds us of the reign of Augustus because his reign is important for understanding the third gospel and the book of Acts. But in the second place, in discussing world history, Luke is also giving his readers a date of Jesus' birth. You may know of a country, of course you live in a country, that has adopted the slogan, no taxation without representation. It's on, all the, uh, uh, the, the, it's on many of the uh, license plates in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, Philip Ryken once joked that Romans held to the much older principle that there should be no taxation without registration. Uh, uh, less uh, flattering for the citizens, but very useful for the government. That's what we see in the opening verses of this chapter. Luke tells us that a decree, probably some kind of administrative ruling, came from the top. And this ruling or census, we know from Roman practice, was tied to support for matching legislation on taxation. Luke also gives a precise historical reference point, including a reference to the governorship of Quirinius. Now, more ancient data would need to resurface before we could regain all the information that Luke's first readers had at their fingertips. But what we do know is that on rare occasions in the Roman provinces, registration was required at the town of or the place of one's ancestors. Now, this kind of ruling was highly disruptive. Travel was not easy and not common. This kind of ruling was also, like many foreign intrusions, a cause of suffering. One more piece of evidence that that people lived in a world where sins and sorrows grow. Having to leave your town or village and make a trek to the place that you were born was not easy for many, or where your ancestors were born. Well, this was the state of the world, and it was just what was needed to fulfill an ancient prophecy about a town, as we can see in verse 4. For because of this decree, the man Joseph went up from Galilee in the town of Nazareth to Judea and the city of David. More words that speak volumes. David, the greatest of all Old Testament kings, was born in Bethlehem. And it was prophesied that great David's greater son would one day be born there too. Now Jerusalem's also called the city of David in 2 Samuel. For it's there that he spent much of his life. It is there that he died. But here Luke is speaking about a birth in the city of David. And everyone understood that the prophet Micah predicted the birth of the Savior taking place in Bethlehem itself. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. It was a powerful prophecy, one to which a declining Jewish world clung to with ever-diminishing hope. In fact, the Jewish teachers, at least, had it at their fingertips. They still knew this prophecy. They still held the hope. We know that because later, when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, and Herod said he wanted to know where the king was supposed to be born, the little town to the south of the big city was named immediately. Now, getting to the town of Bethlehem in the south of the country, from Nazareth, in the north of the country, 
was a real inconvenience. No money could be earned by Joseph while he was traveling, and much money would need to be spent. This was an extremely costly trip, a major outlay for a sole proprietor, a small business owner who likely would have lived each day on the business made in recent days. Someone like a a carpenter who would normally go through life pinching every penny for occasional pilgrimages to Jerusalem could hardly afford an additional trip of this kind. And of course, shepherds and nomads, they had primitive camping equipment. Carpenters did not. A normal man would have to pay for a room in an inn or a room in a house each night that he traveled. And as safe as the empire might be, no man would want to leave his wife out in the open air. It was difficult for most travelers. For Mary and Joseph, the experience must have been nothing short of dreadful. You know, very pregnant women are not known for their abilities to walk quickly for extended periods. On the day that she gave birth to our first child, Emily was not even able to walk around our large back lawn 10 times, and she had the handles of a lawnmower to support her. (laughs) That, by the way, was her idea and not mine. She thought the walking might make the baby come earlier, and it did. Well, my guess is that if the Guinness World Book of Records was to celebrate walking records for women in late-term pregnancies, those who have had babies would be expecting it to be measured in miles or, or meters and minutes, not miles or days. And yet Mary's trip required more than four days of fast walking, according to Google Maps, if they were to keep the costs down. And if they did manage to rent a donkey as all the pictures like to say they did, she could hardly have felt much better. After all, donkeys are not luxury vehicles. Once again, volumes are spoken in only a few words, this time when Luke tells us that Joseph made the journey with Mary. Mary going to Bethlehem does not sound easy, but Mary being left behind may have felt even worse. Remember the words of the angel, A virgin would conceive and bear a son. That's what was happening. But it had every appearance of a shotgun wedding, of newlyweds expecting a baby. Luke 2 verse 5 mentions that Mary and Joseph were betrothed as a way of emphasizing their ongoing purity. But they were married at this point, as Matthew 1 clearly indicates. And married or not, Mary probably would have been treated with shame and distrust in Joseph's hometown. It would have been hard to be there without him to protect her. Elizabeth got a party when John was born. Mary was not expecting a party when Jesus would arrive. People would find it hard to believe in a virgin giving birth because it had never happened before. People still find it hard to believe because it has never happened since. But it did happen. It happened in the town of Bethlehem during the first registration, around the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria and Caesar Augustus was emperor of the world. Perhaps Mary and Joseph knew that they needed to go to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy alluded to in verses 4 and 5. Perhaps they were just avoiding local gossip. In any event, the worldwide decree 
dictated that they needed to be registered in that town because it was time, as we see in verse 6. And so it was that the little town of Bethlehem received its most important visitors since the birth of David over a thousand years before. So it was that the hopes and fears of all the years were met in Bethlehem one night. It's interesting to note that nowhere in this paragraph is God's overruling guidance mentioned, but it's everywhere seen. It is clearly seen in verse 6, where we are told that while they were in Bethlehem, it came time for Mary to give birth. It'll be obvious to our mothers that with all that walking, the baby could have come on the way. Babies do sometimes come early. On the other hand, it could have happened on the way back. I mean, it's at least conceivable that they might have met an efficient government worker who finished their paperwork quickly and got them home. The whole world is not always like the Charlotte DMV. And babies do sometimes come late. But the time came for her while they were in Bethlehem because there's someone who appoints all of our times. And this time, which the Apostle Paul later calls the fullness of time, was not merely a stopping point on the life itinerary of Joseph and Mary, an appointment that was on the calendar of their lives as each birth in this world is. No, this was an event that was specially set on the alarm clock of eternity. God made the appointment, marked the calendar, mapped the itinerary. He did this because He planned and then led his prophets to prophesy and predict these very events. All the days of our lives are written by God. But some events are made known in advance because they have significance for all the world. This was one of those events. Mary had to give birth in Bethlehem because God had said so to the prophets because the prophets had said so to God's people, because the angel had reminded the Virgin Mary that this child who was to be born of her would be the final king of the house of David, the true shepherd for the sheep of Israel. So a decree for the world, a trip to town, a special time, and then in verse 7, we are finally told about the birth. What was it like for Mary to give birth to a firstborn son and to know that he was the firstborn of God? What was it like for Mary to give birth to a baby and to know that she was giving life to the one who would give eternal life? In fact, what was it like to give birth to the Son of God, to wrap him in ordinary cloths and then have to lay him in a feeding trough when it was time for both mother and and baby to sleep. The first Adam came into this world in a beautiful garden with dominion over the creatures, naming the king of the jungle. The last Adam would come, be born, laid in a feeding trough, having to borrow his bed from the animals that he created. When the baby was born, Shepherds in nearby hills were told that they could find the baby because he was wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. As one biblical commentator has put it, in Bethlehem that night there might have been one or two babies wrapped in swaddling cloths, but surely there was only one 
lying in a manger. Here again, Luke uses few strokes, but he paints a picture worth a thousand words. It is one of the notorious facts of history that there was no room found or perhaps no room made for them in Bethlehem for this expecting mother and for her child. Luke says it so simply, Mary laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Readers of the Bible have long wondered how much significance to give to the fact that the third gospel tells us there was no room for them in the inn. Was it that they were poor? Or that distant relatives in, in town had heard about the scandal? Was there room for others? Was there room for more respectable travelers, for newlyweds maybe not expecting a baby? Would there have been room for the rich men from the east who would come sometime later? The point that Luke is making does not seem to be an observation about the density of the population of a town, but on the humility of the condition of a birth and the rejection of a woman in desperate need. Really, as one old author has put it, how barbarous all this was. If there had been any common humanity among them, they would not have turned a woman in labor into a stable, a stable of all things. But this morning, I want to ask us whether that picture might still be too generous. I mean, do we really have firm grounds that there was a stable at all? Don't we have hope that our hymns and Roman, and, and our, uh, Roman Catholic nativity scenes are correct and that the baby was at least laid in an indoor manger and not in an outdoor one because it's too awful to imagine Mary giving birth outside? We emphasize every Christmas how humiliating it would be to give birth in a cattle shed. But was it that good? Don't we want to imagine the privacy of a stable, a bed of fresh, bright yellow straw? Because it's appalling to give thought, appalling to consider Mary giving birth either outside in the darkness behind a barn or in a busy courtyard outside the inn. An appalling thought to imagine her giving birth in the two places most likely for a feeding trough to have been placed. It appalls us because of the reverence that we hold for our Redeemer. Luke mentions that there was no room inside. Why do we always assume that she might not have been outside? To be honest, it's hard for us to fathom the depths of the shame and misery which accompany our Redeemer in His rough wooden cradle, perhaps without straw, at the beginning of his life to the rough wooden cross at the end. For the sojourner of sojourners, the traveler from heaven itself, no inn was available and perhaps no stable. Everything on earth was a temporary lodging for him. But as he said to his disciples, sometimes he had no roof under which to lay his head. This was certainly true on the night of his death. It was perhaps equally true on the night of his birth. In this one paragraph, Luke tells us, doesn't he, of a worldwide decree, a town, a time, and a birth. But of these four, 
It is the first and last of these, the decree and the birth, which always hold our attention. One irony of the third gospel is the way in which Luke lets us see that God chose to have the whole world register with the Romans so his eternal son could be born in Bethlehem. But just saying this is to admit that the truly significant decree wasn't Caesar's, but God's. For as we read Luke 2, we hear the evangelists tell us each Christmas what Jesus would tell a visitor one night. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, a promise that extends as far as the curse is found. And in decreeing that he would send a savior to this world, God did not decree a generality, a vague event, No, he decided all the specifics. The world as his stage, the trip to the town, the precise time, and finally the trough for a baby. Because for our salvation, God decreed a birth for our Savior that was not only humbling, but utterly humiliating. I mean, can't you at least imagine the jokes told in Bethlehem? There's this country bumpkin who came to give birth in town. But there was no room in the inn. And no doubt as she and Joseph turned away from the door, they and their baby were the butt of the joke. Newlyweds, a pregnancy, and surprise, surprise, no room in Bethlehem. I mentioned this sad joke about a bride, not to say something about brides, but to say something about jokes. Sometimes a few words can speak volumes. But in order for these words to speak to us, We need to study those words and understand the context. Some were astonished at the story of the shepherds. For others, no doubt, the birth of Jesus must have been the joke of the town. Did you hear about the pregnant newlywed giving birth behind the barn and putting her baby in the feeding trough? But why? Why was our Lord born in such circumstances? Why was this important to God that his son arrive in this world in such a state? The answer is that Jesus came to save us completely. Are you a Christian? Then you know that the good news of the gospel is the news that Jesus came to take upon himself our sin and our penalty too. But Jesus did not only come to pay the price of the guilt of our sin, as if the pains of hell were a small thing to be endured for us. No, he also came to bear our disgrace. Some of us know what it's like to be ashamed. We dread the thought that others would know us as we know ourselves or as those who are closest to us see us behind closed doors. We feel the crushing weight of disappointment and failure. We wish we could bury beyond all recovery things that we have said and thought and done. Christ endured this suffering from birth to death, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him, the joy of delivering us not just from our sin, but also from our shame was the joy of Jesus, who is the joy of the world, 
to take away our disgrace and to purchase our glory through his humility, to make weeping sinners into laughing saints. His cradle was only the beginning, for there at least he was covered by cloth. But on his cross, it was all stripped away. In the weekly humiliation and torture of a Nazi prison camp in World War II, Corey Ten Boom, her sister Betsy, and all the other women were required to undress before leering male guards for what was called a medical inspection. She tells in her book, The Hiding Place, how one winter day, humiliated and mocked, Corey found yet another page in the Bible leaping into life. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known, had not thought, she writes. The paintings, the carved crucifixes show at least a scrap of cloth. But this I suddenly knew was respect and reverence from the artist. But oh, at the time itself, there was no such reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us. I leaned forward to Betsy, ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood so sharp and thin beneath her blue and mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me, I heard a gasp. Oh, Corey, it had to be. And I never thanked him. Do your sins rise up to condemn you? Are you embarrassed, no, ashamed of the ugliness and disgrace of your sin? Then remember this. Jesus came to save us completely, both from sin and from, and from shame. In him you stand before your Father with righteousness and with dignity. What a Savior. What a Savior. And yet, with a few swaddling cloths, the offer of a manger, and no offer of a bed, the people of Bethlehem made no room for this Savior in their, in their town. What about you? Many since the time of Bethlehem have prepared no room for him in their hearts. Norval Geldenheist points out that what the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in their ignorance is done by many today in willful indifference. They refuse to make room for the Son of God. In his first coming, the, the joy of the world was no doubt the joke of the town. In his birth, through his life, in his death, but also in the long years while we have awaited for his return. Jesus has been mocked and ignored and opposed. The king has not held the right place, the central place in our hearts. And for this, our world will answer to God. In fact, each of us will have to answer to the Father who sent this Son. Each of us will have to answer one question. Did you honor my Son? Do you know the one who takes away the penalty of death? And the sting of sin, will you give him by God's grace, with God's help, the honor that is due to him? Will you do that this Christmas and in the weeks and years remaining in your life? Truly, it is for him that our song should be employed. Not only heaven, but all nature ought to sing. Here's the one who reversed the curse as far as it was found. Here is the one now and forevermore who will rule the world with truth and grace. So what should we do this Christmas? Let us seek him 
Let us serve him while there is time. Let us worship him in our words and deeds, the one who is born in unimaginable shame so that we could die in peace and be raised with him in unspeakable glory. Let us give thanks to him now and then sing the wonders of his love. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we think about what your Son has done for careless people like ourselves, we can see that not only in Bethlehem, but in every heart, we should prepare him room. Forgive us for the lukewarmness of our worship and the thoughtlessness of our lives. Help us to walk humbly before the eternal King become man, a baby wrapped with cloths and wedged in a manger a man on his cross, but then deserting his grave so that we could live and reign with you forever. Do this by your powerful spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.